Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be reviewing an article that was sent to me by a listener named Matt. Matt, if you're listening, I always appreciate your emails. Um, He brought this one to my attention because it seemed to have some problematic bits in it. And yes, this is on the subject which never seems to die. Uh, distributism of some sort. It seems to be arguing against the stock market, or at least stock trading. I haven't read the article entirely. I've only skimmed little bits of it, so I think we're all in for a surprise. We'll see what we find. Um, I'll be just making comments as I go. You'll be reading along with me, and my jumbled and rambling thoughts will now be your jumbled and rambling podcast episode today. So let's see what we find. The majority of Americans own stocks. American workers generally depend on stocks for their retirement through IRAs and 401ks. Every Catholic diocese and college in America invests funds in the stock market. Popular wisdom tells us to put your money in the market, saying, quote, if you're not investing, you're losing. If we do not invest, we are not merely losing out on potential gains, but we're also losing the very value of our money through rampant inflation, which devalues every dollar that, quote, just sits in the bank. Stock trading is a common activity of the American rich and an increasing necessity for the middle class, if they are to maintain their position in society. But what is it? All right, well, you guys might also enjoy the usury and the inflation episode, so if you like these kinds of... uh, of episodes, go back, listen to those. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about usury, and if you don't know my definition, the explanation, this might not make a ton of sense. We have a lot to read, so I can't rehash all that. Suffice to say, if we had deflation, in other words, the value of money rises um, compared to the price of goods, I think that's wrong. In fact, I think that's a type of usury. Why? Well, there's no market activity, there's no value created, there's no um, labor done, there is no capital sold or employed, there is no risk taken on, there is nothing of value that's done, and yet there is a return to this privileged class of those who own currency. I think that's at the root of the sin of usury, and I explain that in much more depth in that other episode. So I really oppose deflation. I think it is morally wrong. It's actually a type of theft. Not a fan, guys. So that's off the table. The next option is we could have no inflation. That's totally possible. Um, That's very hard. We just absolutely need to nail the growth in the money supply. Um, that match with the growth in the uh, total total quantity of goods and services created by the market. So that's pretty tricky. Um, So instead, we get a little buffer room because, again, we don't want deflation. That has some economic consequences, and I think it's wrong, as I just described. So we try to get that buffer of like 2%, maybe 3%. One of the other benefits of this, and I'm still thinking through this theory, and I might do a whole podcast episode or an article just on this topic, Um, Alan Greenspan and others have described um, how the long-term preference for getting something uh, today rather than later seems to account for a historic 3% rate of return risk-free. And that's quite common to find pretty much in every age and in any place you look. It seems to be just part of human nature that that's kind of what we require if we're going to be giving something up for, say, a year. So, What happens when we set inflation at 3%? I would argue that this actually um, matches what the risk-free rate of return is, such that when people then turn their money over to a risk-free rate of return, say a treasury bond or something like that, um, and inflation is 3%, it means that the possibility of any usury, which comes from just holding currency, is gone. It's neutralized. Um, Yeah, that's, that's a big concept, and there's ways that the economy kind of um, changes due to inflation and expected inflation, and this is a much more complicated thing. If you want more info, again, check out those other episodes. But right here, it seems to be operating on the premise that it's a bad thing, that there is some inflation. I agree it's bad to have a lot of inflation. That's definitely bad. Like, the amount we have now is not cool. But we do need some, and uh, we should not expect that our money should just never, quote, lose value, nor should we expect that it should gain value because that's totally not cool. All right, just sits in the bank. I like that he puts that in scare quotes because your money does not just sit in the bank. Instead, it becomes deposits and those deposits become loans. 
It's not entirely that simple. That's the economics book definition, right? That you save money, it becomes deposits, the deposits become loans. It's more complicated with that in practice, especially with the shifts that the Federal Reserve has made. Um, it kind of goes in the opposite direction at the moment. Instead, loans create deposits. <laughs> so that's, that's a can of worms. But let's see what else he is saying. And he just uh, talked about the middle class having to maintain their position in society in this way. Um, anyways, so this is a difficult question to answer, and not merely because one must use economic jargon to do so. The trading of stocks is set up to appear like a straightforward natural activity. Yes, it's natural. Everything in the free market is natural. It's an ecosystem in a way. In fact, uh, Adam Smith, when he um, wrote The Wealth of Nations, uh, I'm told at least that he was inspired by Darwin's early and earlier works, uh, The Origin of Species. So economics borrows a lot from ecology and the biological sciences in general, and it actually goes back and forth. This is a natural activity, the free market. As much as a beehive is the natural activity of bees, the economy is the natural activity of man. So stocks, the ownership of capital, divided up amongst its members in society, mm -hmm. yeah, that's natural because it's human and that's how we freely behave. Anyways, in this way, it is like typing on a computer. One knows that it works, but who could really say how it works? One takes a certain type of action the same sort of action, no matter what the stock in questions are, and money comes out. Years of investments simply turn into a retirement payout, or we click sell on an app and receive cash in return. But it's necessary to understand the inner workings of this apparently natural process to be sure of what precisely is making money. Why should we care? First, as a matter of uh, so, uh, socialty, Socialty? I don't know what that word is. Anyways, only by knowing what an activity is can we know uh, what it is doing in the world. Second, as a matter of morality, it behooves us to know whether what is being done in the world, which results in money, involves delivering bagels to the hungry or building sweatshops in the South Pacific. And finally, as a matter of theology, Ooh, we got to back up. <laughs> um, yes, guys, um, uh, Mark Barnes, uh, Jacob Imam, I totally agree. We should understand this. Uh, I know a guy who has a whole podcast about economics and morality and whatnot. He's me. Um, so yes, total fan. I completely agree. We should definitely understand this and how we're making money and how it works. Like, high five for that. Um, about this morality part, um, delivering bagels to the hungry or building sweatshops in the South Pacific. It seems to be implying that these sweatshops in the South Pacific are very bad. Now, listen, we should always treat other human beings with respect, of course, but we also need to understand that work can be hard. <laughs> you know, we're, we're still working in the cursed ground, guys. It can be a bit of a bummer. <laughs> so yeah, work can be really hard. And um, that's part of the human condition sweatshops are really hard work. But um, what matters a lot is that people wish to take these jobs freely, um, apart from coercion, uh, with full knowledge of what they're in for, and that they're free to leave. These are very important parts. Now, we may do an episode entirely on libertarian uh, philosophy. I'm not a libertarian. There are certain insights that libertarians have, which are true, and at many times and in many places, they are allies to the Catholic position. It's not always true. However, consent, the theory of consent, is very important economically. It distinguishes freely alienating your labor from slavery. So consent's important. Um, so if you freely consent because you believe it's in your best interest to work at a sweatshop because it is better than your alternatives, then, well, hey, we should respect your choice as a free rational agent to deploy your labor where you think is best for yourself, for your family, for your community. If that's a sweatshop, okay, that's a sweatshop. Um, if you don't believe me that this is the right way to view this, may I point you to the parable of the servants. I, th I think they were in a vineyard. 
And the master says uh, to some servants, hey, I'm going to pay you X amount of money. Come and, and harvest the grapes. And they freely do so. And then later on in the day, he's still getting workers. He gets some more. And then towards the very end of the day, he says, hey, come over here and do this. And at the end, he pays them the same sum. And some of the workers look at the others and say, we have been here slaving in the hot sun for this entire day. And yet you pay us the same amount? The same amount as the people who just walked on the job? That is totally not fair. Well, this is prompted by envy and greed. The fact is that they were happy with their wages. They freely agreed to contract with this person. Um, and that they shouldn't decry the fact that other people received more. Um, what this tells me is that wages are set through consent. And that's the right way to look at it. And the chief reason to rebel against a consent-based wage structure is envy. And that's contempt. We don't like this. So, yeah, we care a lot that they are freely alienating their labor. Um, but, hey, work is hard. We've seen that in the U.S. Work got better because work was hard by our grandparents. This was a sacrifice that made our life better because our great-grandparents mined coal and made steel buildings with without any safety equipment and did all sorts of really hard jobs so that we don't have to. We actually respect that type of self-sacrifice. We shouldn't see the people in sweatshops as oppressed as much as heroes um, doing hard things for their family. They're winning treasure in heaven by being self-sacrificial. And hey, we even benefit from cheap goods, so we should absolutely see them as good guys. All right, moving on. And again, as I've said at the beginning of this, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't tr strive to treat people kindly and give them humane conditions, etc., etc., obviously. Where did I leave off? South Pacific. Okay. And finally, as a matter of theology, we praise stock trading because it makes us money. But this rather leaves out the question of whether or not it makes us saints. Um, man, I wish stock trading was praised more. <laughs> um, it's true. It can make us money. Yep. Um, this leaves out the question of whether or not it makes us saints. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. Not everything is theology, and that's okay. So the principle of subsidiarity that distributists are so so fond of says that the lowest level ought to solve the problem if it is capable of doing so it's kind of a short summary um if economic questions can be solved economically then that's the way they should be solved theology is called the queen of the sciences so just like in an ancient kingdom where there's kings and queens and whatnot not every single problem goes straight to the queen oh no i can't find my I don't know, lost donkeys. I should get the queen. No, 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 no. <laughs> we can just track the little bugger down. It's fine. Um, so when we talk about, you know, making money, uh, we can totally uh, ask economics and say, hey, how do we make money? We don't have to consult theology about how we make money. Uh, we do need to consult it for morality, right? And that would certainly provide guardrails about what we can and can't do economically. Um but yeah, we don't need to confuse theology for all the other sciences. I don't think this is necessarily what he's doing, but I do want to say this as a caution because a lot of distributists start as being Catholics and they read a lot of theology and philosophy. It makes sense of so much of the world and then they want to use that very same stuff to make sense of the rest of the world. But that breaks subsidiarity. We need to allow economics to do economics, physics to do physics, chemistry to do chemistry, and theology to do theology, presiding over all of the sciences. Where was I? But this leaves us, how many times am I going to say the words, where was I? Oh gosh, I have to say it again. I lost my place. Where was I? But this rather leaves us out the question of whether it makes us saints. Sure. Yep. Mm -hmm. We can't do bad things. Jumping on one foot doesn't make me a saint. Totally fine though. All right, we know what the world thinks of stock trading, that it is prudent, clever, and increasingly necessary. But what does God think about it? And I agree, guys, this is a really important question. To understand a thing, it is helpful to know where it came from. Like most of the venerated institutions of our modern society, modern investing has its roots in the Middle Ages. Okay, anyways, um, which saw a rise in trading expeditions, the financing thereof, and the development of a distinct mercantile class. 
St. Thomas Aquinas gives us a glimpse into this world and how it understood itself. He says that an investor who pays for the costs of a merchant's journey with the hope of sharing in its profits creates a type of societas, or joint activity with him. In medieval Latin, societas first denoted a personal relationship, even being used to refer to a marriage, for the term came to carry a technical meaning as well, a single venture agreement between an investing partner called a stands or staying one, who stayed at home, and a traveling partner called a tractor, or hauling one, who accepted the personal challenge of the venture. The former would put up two-thirds of the money, and the traveler, one-third, with profits or losses, split 50-50. Both parties were subject to unlimited personal liability if the venture was unsuccessful. For example, the traveling partner might use the money to sail to Portugal, procure wine, and bring it back to sell in the local market. After paying the cost of travel, whatever was left over was split evenly with the investing partner. If the merchant capsized and lost everything, they both lost their investment. Raymond D. Ruver, which is a fun name, writes that it would be a mistake to consider the stands as a sort of sleeping partner who was, that's a strange choice of words, uh, who is only (laughs) interested in getting a return on a speculative investment. The investor was often an older merchant, well-practiced in business, who advised the young merchant on where to go and what to buy, and would aid him in selling the goods upon his return. The proceeds of the profits would be divided between the merchant and the investor, and the societas would end once the funds were distributed. According to Edwin Hunt, a new business arrangement became popular after St. Thomas died, one organized around multiple partnerships that endured for a long time rather than being limited to a single venture. These agreements lasted according to the partner's preference, usually between 2 and 12 years. A typical example of this type of enterprise is the 14th century Perezzi Company. It consisted of 21 partners. Each partner contributed money to the venture, entitling them to a proportional percentage of the total profit of the company. Still, the venture took the form of a societas, a venture of laborers and investors risking loss in the hope of providing goods to their communities and remunerating and of remuneration by a share of the profits. In the case of the Perezzi company, most, if not all, shareholders, along with several sons of shareholders, worked actively for the company, and none received any apparent remuneration other than that pro rata share of the profit. The investor became an explicitly active member of the joint action. This, we will argue, distinguishes the medieval societas, even in this later form, from the modern company. In the centuries that followed, an important feature arose that made way for our modern stock market, the legal concept of a company. Um, As should be clear by this point, the societas described people. Company, as we now use the term, describes a legal entity, an it. People can own a part of it and own a part of it for an unfixed period of time, where once they had a relationship to an us. Okay, cool, man. I mean, this is like kind of interesting history. I, cool. <laughs> Learning stuff as I go. I don't think I could have articulated all this off the bat. Um, now, I will caution, just because something was a common way to organize society in the past, it does not follow that it is the only way to organize organize a society or an economy, nor is it the right way just because it came from the Middle Ages. There's lots of things from the Middle Ages we like, and there's plenty that we don't. But continuing. The transformation of the societas into the company, the us into an it, has a complex history. I will argue that most people who work for a company do feel like there's a camaraderie amongst others, so I, I wouldn't be so quick to do that. Um, however, it does appear that we've split labor and capital, and I think a lot of people are happy with that. I wouldn't want to be hired onto a company, and the only way that I can do my thing and work is that I put in a massive amount of my own capital and have it at risk of loss. That sounds scary, right? So a lot of people might prefer that division, and if they would like to own a piece of that company, in our current system, anybody who works at, say, Lowe's can buy Lowe's stock. Anybody who works at 
General Motors can buy General Motors stock, at which point they are contributing labor and capital. They can be identified with other people who work at, say, General Motors. They're going to have a group identity, a corporate culture, all this stuff. So I, I wouldn't be so quick to just say that we've turned it into an it and there's not an us. I, I, I think that there's a lot of companies that, that feel like an us, but I think that's kind of beside the point. I don't think that really matters in a way, but we continue. We continue. It suffices to point out that for this shift to be possible at all, it was necessary for an investor to begin to relate to the ventures as something that exceeded the life and the purchases of any of the individuals that made it up. This could not have happened without the practice of temporally indeterminate investments. Let's pause there. A thought is formulating in my brain. He describes it first a venture that begins with, hey, our society wants some wine from Portugal, and don't we all, guys? So these groups pair up, they go off to Portugal, presumably they don't sink at sea, which is, you know, great, and they bring back the wine, and then this organization um, goes away, right? They, they accomplish their mission. We have a telos, right? We arrived at our goal, that, that is an end of it, it dissolves. Sure, that's fine, but let me ask you this. Would we want, say, I don't know, New Balance, the shoe company, would we want them to act like this? Where some people get together and say, we're going to go to China and we're going to get shoes. And they go to China and they get us shoes and they come back and say, behold, we have brought you footwear. Well, my first question would be, uh, do you have plans to do it again? Because, I mean, kids grow out of shoes and I destroy them at an alarming rate. So I'm going to have to buy some new shoes like next year or the year after that. So have you, hmm. humanity needs shoes on a continuous basis. So have you considered just making this kind of like an ongoing relationship maybe with these factories such that you can provide a constant flow of shoes in perpetuity? Like, what about that? And if we do identify the need for shoes and, you know, all these other things as desires that we'll have in a continuous fashion, well, then, of course, the, the entity will continue likewise in order to supply them. But if one owns a portion of this company, which plans to exist into the future, generating profit through providing this value, well, then one's ownership of this portion of the venture would represent a claim on the net present value of the future earnings stream. Oh, behold, we have the definition of the value of a stock, right? We don't know the future, so we all individually guess as best we can what that future earnings stream will be. And hey, we might disagree, and that might mean that I want to pay a lot for a stock and you want to pay a little. For instance, there's a lot of people right now who think that Tesla will have a really high earnings stream in the future, even though they have a very piddly earning stream today. So the stock is very high. Um, likewise, if we were at the time of Henry Ford and there's a very profitable carriage company, the best carriage company in the world, um, it might not actually be very valuable as a company because even though its its assets could be, could be in wonderful condition, it has great workers and talent, it has excellent way of distributing its products and selling them and everything, well, in light of the future, we can discount their earnings stream because the competitors that are coming online, uh, namely Henry Ford, are going to reduce their value stream. Therefore, this ongoing endeavor um, is going to be less valuable. And if we own a proportion of it, that portion will decrease in light of the future earnings. Remember the future earnings based on creating future value. We need future value because we have future needs. And because we have future needs, we need these things to endure past a single partnership or even just a group of partners who have a terminus in mind. To continue, if an investment is neither for a determinate venture, which it concludes, nor for a set time, then the work the investment enables must have no end. While a societas is marked by a terminus, a company is marked by a quasi-immortal life. And while a societas is marked by a definite is marked by a definite work, a company is marked by any work. However, it came about historically that th this transition allowed an investor to claim ownership of a company in the same manner 
he might claim to own any other, quote, it, such as a table or a car or a house, without a terminus and without a need to work for the enterprise, continuously fund it or take a proportionate share of its profits and losses. Well, um, well let's, let's look at each one of those. Without the need to work for the enterprise, I think that's kind of always true, right? In fact, in his example, he talks about the, what is it, the, the stayus person, the person who actually stays. Well, it doesn't seem that they're working for the enterprise, but I don't see him taking an issue with this necessarily. Um, yeah, I don't think that in Jesus's parables, the master who gives out those talents to be invested, he gets a return, but he doesn't work for the enterprise. Um, continuously fund it. Well, I really hope that you don't have to continuously fund your enterprise. I would imagine that if it's making value in the eyes of your neighbor, then it will be continuously funding you, right? If you have to continuously fund your enterprise, then you're losing money, which is the market saying that you are destroying resources faster than you're making resources. And if we all do that, then, well, before long, our resources will be gone and we starve and die without shelter and you know, bad stuff. So we want it to continually fund us because we're making a profit. And profit's good. Or take a proportionate share of its profits and losses. Well, it's a little confusing to me because um, that's what equity is, right? If you own stock, you do share in the profit and loss. Like, that's what equity is. You could maybe have a debt stake in something, at which point you make an agreement that you get interest and that you get paid back in certain situations um, so you can be shielded from some loss. So there's a variety of different types of debt. Let's see if I know them off the top of my debt. There is a senior unsubordinated debt, and that's the highest level. Then there's senior subordinated debt, and then there's what, junior unsubordinated and junior, uns yeah, junior unsubordinated and junior subordinated. So, anyways, there's a bunch of rankings of debt. So if somebody has their company collapse, there's a ranking of debtors that you pay from first to last. So yeah, you're shielded in part from the losses, but debtors aren't completely um, free to just leave the lender, right? Um, and there's bankruptcy laws, things like that. And anyways, I digress. The first example of the publicly traded company with shares traded amongst dormant partners, that is speculators. Mm, okay, I think speculators are... Uh, speculation is typically about a non, um, maybe the, let's, let me just give you what most people economically would, would view a speculator as. An investor is somebody who is estimating that future value stream and trying to allocate resources to those who can create the most value in the future. That is a wonderful activity. That is exactly what we want people doing. Speculators are ones who aren't concerned about the value stream, but instead are acting more like this is a giant um, zero-sum game where they're actually just betting. An example of speculators would be, and this might be controversial, but I don't care, Bitcoin, right? There's no value stream from Bitcoin. If anything, it destroys value because it takes lots of energy to produce, all that computing power, so it only has costs. It doesn't generate revenue, except for maybe transaction fees, but they're pretty small and that doesn't offset it. So there's no value stream, and yet a share of this thing goes up in value, and it goes up because everybody in this market is a speculator. They just think that it will go higher in the future, and they're basically playing a giant game of chicken against all the other speculators who think that they can buy and sell and make their money uh, before the whole thing just crashes, which it may. Um, or they may run chicken at each other for years and years. We will see. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't just call people who are dormant partners speculators. I think there needs to be a a distinction between those who speculate, so I, I.e. are gambling, or seeing as you're some game, are simply trying to take from others without creating value, versus investors who are channeling value to its highest valued use. All right. The Dutch East India Company, founded in March of 1602, where, uh, while, while, as in the Societas, investors were promised a percentage share of the profits, the Dutch East India Company profits were not shared at the conclusion of this or that venture. 
Rather, they were reinvested into the company for the sake of greater growth. And this meant that unlike the societas, the investors did not know what definite actions they were funding. Okay, yeah, that's true. You don't always know the definite actions that you're funding. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, that's true. Um, and certainly it becomes the onus on those who make um, specific decisions to always act morally. We're all in agreement there. Um, but hey, our knowledge is always going to end somewhere. You could say that it's not just an investment problem, but it would also be a buying problem. So imagine that we destroyed every single company and made societases. Or is that? Yeah, societases. Yeah. Anyways, then we wouldn't always know what we're funding when we purchase the money from these societases. So if you are sailing to Portugal to get wine, like in his earlier example, well, I don't know if you do that while praying the rosary the whole way, or if you just dipped by Africa, got a bunch of slaves, and have a all-slave crew. I really don't know. So if this whole I-don't-know-what-we're-funding problem exists um, for investors, well, it also exists for consumers. But um, yeah, if it exists for consumers, then I see the solution as simply being uh, used the knowledge that you have, seek to make prudent choices, and to the extent you are able, live at peace with all men. <laughs> so the answer is the same for both. And if this objection precludes one, it precludes both. If it precludes both, it precludes consuming. If it precludes consuming, then we can't buy from the societas either. All right. Um, the company, oh, let's talk about the, the profits and the shared earnings. Um, it's kind of true that the profits aren't um, shared. It's not entirely true, though. So retained earnings and dividends are the two chief ways. There are kind of others, but basically those are the two chief categories of how you return value back to the shareholder. So let's say you have a, a company and it's worth $100. It's your lemonade stand. And you make $10 that year, so go, go you. If you just keep those $10 at your lemonade stand, well, how much is your lemonade stand worth now? It's worth $110. And let's say I had a 10% stake. What's that worth? Well, it's worth $11 instead of 10. If I wanted that in the form of, so in that sense, because they retained those earnings, the profit was given to me as an owner. My share in the company just went up by 10%. I gained a dollar. Now, if the issue is, yeah, but they didn't get a distribution in cash, well, that's easy. I just go to my neighbor and I tell him that I own a 10% stake in a profitable uh, lemonade stand, and I'd be interested in selling that stake. Now, before it was worth $10, and now it's worth 11 So I paid 10 It's now worth 11 I sell it. I get a dollar. Wha-bam. There's my cash distribution. And the other option is sometimes companies believe that it'd be better to just send out that dollar, that they don't really have like this pressing place where they need to reinvest. Instead, they think that it'd be better to just give it to their owners. And they make that decision based on uh, what the marginal rate of intern, what the uh, marginal rate of return would be for their internal rate of return. In other words, if they deploy that, that $10 in their lemonade stand, can they expand their um, their profit next year or not. Um, maybe they don't have anything that they could buy to expand. They've already been rocking their lemonade stand hard and there's nothing that they can really reinvest in that will make a positive return. So they might as well just distribute that as dividends and that's fine. So yeah, retained earnings is a type of return to those who hold the um, hold the stock. So I, I don't know if he's opposing that, but what are you saying here? Um, anyways, rather they reinvest into the company for the sake of greater growth. And this meant that unlike the societas, the investors did not know what definite actions they were funding. The company itself and not this or that person making a single trip became the object of their investment. Okay, sure. Um, all right. Initially, speculators were required to hold their investment for 10 years before the company would disclose its monetary success and allow them 
if they wished, to recall their money along with any profits. However, the directors of the company realized prior to their public sale of the shares that this period was too long, that people would not buy. Instead of shortening that period, however, they allowed investors to sell their share of the company to someone else. On the first page of the share register agreement, they added conveyance or transfer of shares may be done through the bookkeeper of this chamber. That is, investors no longer had to wait until 1612 to make money on their investment. They could do so by selling their shares at any time to another investor. This enabled investors to buy them not for the sake of profiting from the eventual payout, but for the sake of selling them to another investor for more than they had paid for them. Like all commodities, the value of these shares began to fluctuate through supply and demand. One could sell a share at a higher price to someone willing to pay for it. From August 1602 to April 1603, the price of shares had risen by 6.5%. This new market, generally called the stock market, is also called the secondary market, a term which describes the activity of seeking to profit from the sale in a company rather than from the company in its activities. Um, yeah, all right, yep, yep. And as Matt in the email also pointed out, and I, th- I think I kind of talked about earlier, yeah, there's disagreements about what that uh, net future, or the present value of the net, uh, the present net value of the future earnings stream is, right? That's why there's a difference between um, what I would pay and what maybe you would pay for a given stock. I'd also say that, um, let's say I find somebody who's uh, nearing retirement and they, they need to absolutely count on a certain baseline amount of funds, uh, just being there for them. And I'm a lot younger and I really don't care. I'm just happy to get a good rate of return over the long term. I'm not going to sell till I'm retired. Well, we could look at an individual stock and have wildly different estimations of its value because we have different preferences. He has a shorter time preference and he also values stability more. I value long-term profitability and I'm willing to take more risk. So just because we have different preferences, that will mean that we will be willing to buy stocks and differential prices. And those prices allow the stocks to be distributed to those who wish to have that particular blend of factors from, you know, risk and this and that, right? Okay. Functionally, we operate within the secondary markets by selling shares to fellow speculators. Now, guys, the speculator thing is kind of used as a pejorative in economic parlance. Um, So, yeah, be careful of the implications of this. I already described the difference between investors and speculators. So, The money that one spends to procure stock in the company seldom goes to the company itself. Um, yeah, that's true, right? It's a secondary market. However, um, we, we, we have st- stocks being issued by companies, right? And because they can issue more stock, they're going to typically hold a fair amount of their own stock. Um, they can do stock splits and anyway, stuff like that. Then they have an asset that they can sell for more if the secondary market shows that their stock is in demand. So, see my previous comment about retained earnings, right? They could always just sell it for more than it was previously and they could harvest that gain and that would represent the money that's being paid in the secondary markets finding its way over to the company itself. All right, goes to the previous owners. Um, When we sell, we give up our position to another. Jim may sell his place to Joe and Joe may sell it to Justin. But at no point does the merchant uh, somewhere, perhaps in the water around Portugal, benefit from their transactions. The money does not go towards the real work of getting, say, the spices and the sugar cane. Um, I don't know. I agree, man, because, again, the company could totally issue more stock. Hey, my lemonade stand is totally in demand. Everybody wants to invest. They think that my lemonade stand is going to provide amazing lemonade on into the future in incredible quantities because I make the best lemonade in the world. Well, I only had 10% of the stock actually issued. I I hold the other 90% of the company. Well, maybe I'll issue 20% more because the stock price for that portion has gone up to $20. I now have my company valued at, at $200. 
And with the $40 I just made, well, now I, I can buy another little card table, get some more lemons and, and juice those little critters up and I can have a second location and make more money into the future. So, yeah, right? They could do the same. They could buy another ship and go to Portugal two times that year because people have confidence that what they're doing is good. And as such, they estimate that their future earnings stream is going to be high. And maybe they're right. And then they sell part of their company and then they do that. And then the reason they would do that is because they think that the gains from that sale, um, when they get the 40 and then they can reinvest it and, and uh, make a higher amount, will mean that they will actually have more money than if they retained the full ownership of the company and didn't have that $40 infusion, which allowed them to expand. So we allow economic actors to take these risks and make these choices and have these opportunities. And that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> All right, continuing, continuing. Like the investors of the Societas, uh, modern stock owners become legal owners of the company whose stock they purchase. However, since the innovations of the Dutch East India Company, this, quote, ownership no longer entails a share in that company's profits. Eh, we talked about that. The Dutch East India Company offered their investors dividends, which were not a percentage of the company's profits or loss accrued at the conclusion of a venture, since those under the terms of the contract were automatically invested in the next venture. But instead, there were an arbitrarily determined sum of money regularly paid out to investors capable of being increased or decreased by the company's director as time went on. The difference might seem slight, and indeed in this early transition from percentages to dividends, the total amount paid in dividends was very high by today's standards. But it was a radical break from the past, and with any direct relationship between the success of an individual investor and the success of the venture in which he invested, companies no longer needed to pay dividends that were proportional to profits except by convention or as a way of incentivizing shareholders. In fact, as is the case with many modern companies, they no longer need to pay dividends at all. This legal sacrifice of one share in the profits is the most obvious difference between the company and the societas that preceded it. And it is a sacrifice that firmly separates the secondary market of stock trading from the actual activity of the companies. And this is an italicized font, and I don't know why. If one has little or no share in the profits, then the only benefit one receives from his ownership is one's ability to sell it to someone else. Uh, no. Not in... It's more complicated than that. Lemonade example, once more. So let's say little Susie running her lemonade stand is making that $10 profit. Her lemonade stand is worth $100. And... In the first example, she decides that she'll pay out, uh, the, 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 she'll keep some of the profits, right? And then she'll pay out some of the profits. So that person who owned 10% gets their $1 payout in the form of a dividend. Well, it's totally possible that little Susie decides that she's going to increase her dividend. And she's going to increase it by a lot, right? It's going to be to uh, $20 per year. That's her dividend. Well, what happens then? Well, it could be that she has to actually sell some of her lemonade stuff because maybe she doesn't see it as, as really terribly useful. It's, it's losing money. So she liquidates some. Or alternatively, she thinks that she could uh, debt leverage a bit and um, that the debt markets are more favorable than the equity markets right now. <laughs> right? So anyways, it's getting very complicated lemonade stand, but little Susie's a beast. Anyways, so she could borrow from the debt markets and uh, use some of that money to increase her dividend, which would in hope, uh, one would hope, increase the value of her shares um, if they believe that uh, this dividend is in fact sustainable because the investment that she got from the debt market will allow her to expand in a way that maybe the equity markets didn't think that she could, and therefore she had to take the different risk profile of uh, having debt instead of an increased uh, sale of equity. Anyways, she loses money um, each year because uh, she's paying out 20 and she only makes 10. So let me ask you this, what's the value of that 10% uh, share? Well, um, it started at 10. Uh, they got paid out $2. So it went to 12, right? 
one would think. However, that extra $1 was actually sucked from a company that didn't have the money to pay. So it was worth $110, but she paid out a total of $20. So that brings it down to $90. So if we take the book values, that value that goes down to $9 a share. And if it goes down to $9 a share and they received $2 in cash, well then, oh, well, you look at that. $11 a share, just like our previous example. So you see, it doesn't actually matter that they pay more in dividends than they make in profit, although that can be a bad idea sometimes. It's simply reflected in a markdown in the value of the company, right? From the $10 down to the $9 to offset the extra $1 that was paid. So there. Um, and likewise, we already covered what would happen if they didn't pay a dividend and instead they left that inside of the company. That just increases the uh, value of that portion, i.e. the stock, in proportion to what would have been paid as a dividend, but instead retained, well, technically plus whatever gains that one would have in that future value stream from the reinvestment of what would have been a dividend. Okay. Successful stock, successful, I talk like Sean Connery this time. All right, let me try that paragraph again. Successful stock trading is made possible by the profit-producing activity of a given company. But the legal sacrifice of sharing in these profits renders their relationship contingent rather than necessary. Okay. Owners of companies who share in their profits make more or less money according to the immediate success or failure of the company's productive activities. Uh, activities. Shareholders who sacrifice their share in the profits make more or less money to the degree that they can sell their stocks to others, and this ability to sell their place may be affected by the success or failure of the company, or it may not be. Hard to believe how it may not be. I don't think your stock's going to go up if your company is failing, not over the long term anyway. Um, again, it's based on the future value stream, right? So eventually, that's gonna the future will become today. And uh, if your guess didn't pan out, then you'll be um, you'll be losing out on that investment, right? Going public, the owners of a company have a executive control of its operations and a legal right to the profits it produces. When a company, quote, goes public, its original owners surrender both of these in a legal move appropriately called a public offering. They no longer have a right to the profits. Instead, they are given a certain amount of stock. They no longer exert, okay, owning the stock does mean that they own the profits, right? As we have pounded home in a variety of examples that may or may not require lemonade. They no longer exert executive control over the company. They typically take part instead in a voting board of directors. All right, there's some people who have done some work on this. I Oh, is it Tyler Cohen or is it Michael Munger? I think it was Michael Munger. He's a cool economist. You guys should check him out. He's awesome. Uh, he talks about making rules about rules. And there, there's times where things get complicated enough in human society that we can't just evaluate things and take actions and say, these are the things that I want to come about. Instead, we need to understand that there's knowledge problems, there's time problems, we have other priorities, and we just need to agree instead to like a set of rules, you can use my money this way or that way, instead to rules about rules, meta rules, that I want a process to elect board members to maximize the uh, earnings of the, the company in a way which is, of course, legal, uh, ethical, etc. And there are certain ways that it will go about that I agree with, that I, I want them to, to follow. And then the particulars are left to them. So yeah, this is just about living in a complex world. Sometimes we can't agree to everything because we can't know them. We instead agree about the rules, about the rules. The board is nothing other than a group of people who also own stock in the company, albeit often larger amounts than the public, which is good because we want them skin in the game to have skin in the game, right, guys? Um, we certainly want wouldn't want something else if people are handling my money, and I would want them to have the similar incentives as me. So I, I don't know why he put this in. I don't know if he's against that. Uh, I don't think he should be. We would want people to have aligned incentives, anyways. The board of directors have the responsibility of representing all shareholders of the company to ensure that the stock price increases. Yep. 
The transformation is subtle but profound. The immediate purpose of a company is no longer fulfilled in the goods it produces and the profits it earns, except insofar as the goods and profits increase the capacity of the stockholders to sell their stock to another person for more than they paid for it. Right. And the reason they can sell it for more than they paid for it is because they're increasing the the value stream going on into the future, right? Um, or that they increased it today and that they either retained earnings or paying dividends. And we believe that um, this profitability will continue into the future. And if it didn't, we would want to take resources away from those people and we would want to give them instead to people who can use those resources widely. So, yeah, of course, Jacob and Mark, of course. Anyways, if, for instance, the board of directors determined that this ability to maximize the future sale of their investment would be better served by a bakery ceasing to bake and beginning to produce, say, plastic wrap, it could and would be done. Facebook could become meta. Quote, going public unties a company from a particular purpose outside of the production of a higher stock price. Yeah, this is partially I'd say, like, yeah, I'll give this one a pass. That's true. They are profit-seeking enterprises, but they have comparative advantages. So it might not be that that baking company has a comparative advantage to make plastic wrap better than every other possible person who could create plastic wrap. Um, there's a, a firm entrance and exit poll literature, and it discusses why a company would enter a given market. And it does so if it believes that the risk-adjusted rate of return will be higher there and that the initial uh, payout of the, trans, uh, the transaction costs, which, would, it, which it would take to go from their current market into that market, would justify that. So they would look at their um, internal rate of return compared to that, look at the risk, all that stuff. We want exactly this to happen because the world's a pretty crazy place. Tomorrow, we might not want plastic wrap. Um, we might not want baking. I don't know. Maybe the gluten-free people will get us all and we'll all be gluten-free and we'll have no more bakeries. Well, of course, we would want some of those bakeries to be able to move into other markets. And we would want the first ones to move into other markets to be the ones which have the lowest transaction co uh, costs to make that move. And we would want it to be the ones who have the comparative advantage that would make them um, the best ones to provide that particular new good or service in a quantity which is now demanded. So this is a great thing. We love that firms move into different markets. Um, yeah. All right. This problem of profits explains a phenomenon seen in companies such as Amazon. The founder and former CEO of the company, Jeff Bezos, received no more than $81,840 as his base pay for the last several years, with no bonuses at all. Elon Musk does not even receive a base salary from Tesla. These CEOs' sole, er sole earnings are the rise of prices of their stocks. The person who holds a, a little Amazon stock and a little Tesla stock is in the same position as Bezos and Musk, just to a lesser degree. Oh, what a cliffhanger. We're going to have to leave it there because I am running out of time. I have to go deep sea fishing, guys. I live a wonderful life. So I'll see if I can pick up this later because he's getting into GameStop and actual specula uh, speculation. Um, and there's much more to read to you. So I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, tune in for subsequent episodes. Um, I just sent out some invites to interview some cool people. And I hope that uh, we'll have those soon. So yeah, thanks for listening. Keep sharing. God bless.